Welcome back to The Fighting Life. In 1910, Halley's Comet swung by Earth, lighting up the night sky, inspiring both awe and dread amongst the American public. In the same year, Jack Johnson was at the height of his reign as world heavyweight champion. The first black heavyweight champion, Johnson blazed his own trail through the American psyche. Brasher than Ali, more brilliant than Floyd Mayweather, and badder than Mike Tyson, Jack Johnson lived life on his own terms. While he dominated the best boxers in his era, he upset the establishment with his love of fast cars and fast women. He really is one of the most colourful characters in the history of the sport. James, can you tell us where it all started for this remarkable man? G'day, Chris. Yeah, born in 1878 in Galveston, Texas, Jack is the third child of six, and he's born to former slaves. He gets about five years' worth of schooling in before he quits to help the family, and even as a small kid, he, his mother remembers him saying that he was going to amount to something special. So was that going to be in the athletic field? Did he show prowess from an early age? Not really. I mean, for someone who's going to be known as the Galveston giant later in his life, he's a small, skinny kid. He takes on a bunch of jobs to help the family. He's a janitor. He's a dishwasher. He does all this sort of stuff. And his dream is always to grow taller than the broomstick that he pushes around. <laughs> yeah, you've got to dream big, don't you? <laughs> he's, uh, he's part of a street gang in Galveston called the Avenue K Gang. This is a mixed race gang. Jack says his best friend was a white kid and he gets used to treating black and white kids just the same. There's not a whole lot of racial segregation in his part of town. There's a good quote from him at the time. He says, As I grew up, the white boys were my friends and pals. I ate with them, played with them and slept at their homes. Their mothers gave me cookies and I ate at their tables. So when did he stop eating cookies and start throwing punches? There's mixed stories about how he got involved in fighting, but there's one story that he'd often tell about a local lady called Grandmother Gilmore. And he says that about the age of 12, he's getting bullied by a local kid. And this old lady says to him that he better stand up for himself or she will hit him. <laughs> okay. So, so he's, he's put in a position here with Grandmother Grandma, Gilmore. Grandma Gilmore's going to give him a flogging. Yeah, he said, you know, he was against his natural inclination to fight, but he has to. And he ends up beating this kid. So that's where it all starts. He's also got a story that he was apprenticed to a painter and he was a big boxing fan. So he instilled that love of boxing into him at an early age. It's already clear here that with Jack Johnson, there's always many versions of one story. He's a man surrounded by myth. Some of it his own creating. He told a lot of fanciful tales, if we're honest. Yeah. There's a story about him running away as a young teenager. It sounds like something out of Huck Finn. Can you share that story? Yeah, he says that as a teenager, he, he stowed away on a cotton steamer to New York. So that's a long <laughs> way from Galveston yeah, okay, yeah. to shake the hand of his hero. And this is a man called Steve Brody. Brody was famous at the time for jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge and surviving. Today, everyone looks back on this bloke as a bit of a con man. But he was Jack's hero, and Jack, he travelled all the way up to New York just, for, just to meet this bloke. And after that, he says he went on to Boston, and he met one of his other heroes, a boxer, Barbados Joe Walcott. You've glossed over my favourite part of this story, and that is during this trip, somehow he tangled with a 23-foot shark. That's right. <laughs> I always think with Jack Johnson's stories, even if the ones he tells, and this is a story he tells, even if they're not 
true. They tell how he wanted to live his life. Yeah, I think the stories just got bigger and bigger as, as he got older. But Stories aside, what do we know when he returns to Galveston, if indeed he ever left? <laughs> yeah, so when he gets back to Galveston, he takes on a bunch more sort of menial jobs down there. There's lots of work around. Yeah, there's docks down there. It's on the water. And he works as a hotel porter. He gets some work sweeping out a boxing gym, which he loved. And around this time, it said he'd also take part in these infamous battle royales. Battle royales for the uninitiated were, well, I guess the closest thing we have now is the WWE Royal Rumble. It's every man for himself and the last man standing is the winner. It's a pretty tough initiation into the sport. How did Jack Johnson fare in this arena? Yeah, Jack Johnson would do pretty well in these battle royales. There's a great story from years later in the, in the Bismarck Tribune newspaper. It talks about the time that he came into town. He was up against five other opponents and they decided to gang up on him because t- he was the biggest threat. Seems unsporting. But... And he ends up taking them all out, all five of them coming at him. So he, in the report, it goes that he, he knocks down three of them and the other two just jump out of the ring. They don't, <laughs> want, they don't want to be involved. So that's how good he was. It sounds like he's developing into a bit of an athlete by this stage. Yeah, by 18, he's over six foot tall. He's strong. He's fast. But call him muscular is an understatement. I mean, if you don't know what Jack Johnson looks like, just Google him. He looks like a Vander Holyfield, but bigger somehow. <laughs> and he's a physical freak. And it's around this time that he starts getting good work as a sparring partner for, for top boxers and he, he starts to earn some money. Now, in 1900, Galveston was the biggest city in Texas. It was a thriving port town when it was levelled by a devastating hurricane. America's worst natural disaster, some 8,000 people were killed. Jack Johnson's family survives, but only just. How did they go through this tragedy? Well, Jack tells a story that he he got caught in this storm and he writes about it years later. And he says this is one of the only times in his life where he threw punches in anger. Yeah, (laughs) so... The storm's coming in, the water's rising around him and he's, he's going up a street and there's a man trying to make to profit from the storm. Oh, he's charging a dollar for a use of his cart and horse. Jack manages to get over to this man and beats this man up, takes his horse and cart and then rescues his family, to takes them to higher ground. So, yeah, that's the story he tells about oh, I'm gonna go. I'm going to believe that story because it's a feel-good one. It makes more sense than fighting sharks. That's true. <laughs> Now, the next story we know is true. There's a lot of records about it. In 1901, he faces his first serious challenge in the ring against Joe Choinsky, a name we've heard about a lot, the Californian Terror. Choinsky never became world champ, but they all had to go through him, and he actually takes care of Johnson in three. Johnson wrote of the punch that knocked him out. It was a left hook to the temple. It is one of the most vivid memories of my life. Besides nearly tearing my head off my shoulders, it set shunting a train of events that entirely changed my whole life. Tell us why that loss ended up being a blessing in disguise for Johnson. Choinsky is definitely on the the back nine of his career here. He's slowing down a bit, but he's got enough to to knock out Johnson still. (laughs) And he catches him with that famous left hook he has. The pair both get arrested immediately after the fight by Texas Rangers and they spend, end up spending 23 days in jail together. They, they were looking at possibly spending a year in, in prison, <laughs> but um, they get arrested. I read about that case. They said that in the end there was not much taste for a prosecution because it was a relatively short fight, like this idea of pursuing them and going through the courts. 
the grand jury was like, it was just three rounds. Yep. Whereas Chwinski had been in 27-round bloodbaths. If it had been that kind of fight, it might have been a different story. And the other thing is Chwinski's quote to the judge, because there's always controversy over whether something's an exhibition or if it's a prize fight. So Chwinski, they were arguing it was just an exhibition. And it's like, well, why was he knocked out? And Chwinski said, oh, no, he, was, he wasn't knocked out. He was just having a rest. And I just put him <laughs> in a soft spot to take it easy. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. They get on really well during this 23 days in prison. And Chwinski teaches Jack Johnson everything he knows, especially defence. He works on his slipping, head movement, that sort of thing. And the warden of the warden of the jail ends up being a huge boxing fan as well. And he gives so them... is this prison or a fight camp? You know, it's, <laughs> it sounds it's not hard labour, is it? No, there are many celebrities in there, and they spend the whole time sparring. Choinsky's very impressed by Johnson's speed and size, and he was said to have remarked, "A man that moves like you should never have to take a punch." So he really works on that defence. And Jack Johnson says, "Joe developed a great liking for me." Every day we would box in the jail yard, surrounded by police officers and guests. I learned more in those weeks than I had learned in my entire existence up until that point. Johnson does go on to develop a, a fairly unique style of boxing. How, how would you describe his style after he gets out of the clink? Well, he's certainly much more defensive when he gets out. He becomes a well, defensive genius, really. He waits for his opponents to make mistakes and he punishes them. And it's not always the most attractive style of fighting. I mean, he's a long way from what John L. Sullivan was. He was just knocking out everyone as fast as possible. Yeah, but it's effective in its own right, uh, and he hardly loses a fight after this. The, the heavyweight champion of this year is Jim Jeffries. He famously refuses to give black opponents a chance at the title. But young Jack Johnson actually manages to fight his brother, yeah, so in 1902, at the age of 24, he gets a fight with Jack Jeffries. And it's a huge break for him. Jack Jeffries resembles Jim Jeffries in every way, except he's just nowhere near as good a fighter. <laughs> so he's like a cut price Jim Jeffries. Yeah, just the yeah. worst version. And Jack Johnson just demolishes him. He, he really beats him up. He knocks him out and then carries him to the corner. That's nice of him. Nice of him. He carries him over to his, his corner and Jim Jeffries is in his brother's corner and he says to Jim, I could do this to you too. Jeffries obviously doesn't take the bait. There's a story that he says, you know, he'll fight Johnson in the cellar with no witnesses. That's about as far as he goes, which is more of an insult than a serious offer. And he ends up quitting the ring rather than giving Johnson a shot. How does Johnson finally get his chance at taking the crown? So later that year, Johnson will go on to beat a guy called Denver Ed Martin and claim the coloured championship belt. Lots of people think he deserves a shot at the heavyweight title. And it's not until 1906 that he has a hope with champion Tommy Burns. It's a guy we spoke about on our last podcast. Burns is a stocky Canadian fighter. Now, Burns is different. He says, I will defend my title as a heavyweight champion of the world against all comers, none barred. By this, I mean black, Mexican, Indian or any other nationality. I propose to be the champion of the world, not the white or the Canadian or the American or any other limited degree of champion. He says that, but he doesn't give him a fight straight away. Meanwhile, Johnson's really becoming a huge star on the boxing scene, isn't he? Yeah, he's becoming a huge character. He's attracting a lot of attention. 
He dresses in expensive suits. He's always got an expensive car. He's flashing around his cash. He's got gold teeth at this point. Um, he becomes what in those days was known as a sport. You know, this is a time when when black people, especially in the South, they're very they're invisible. They're downtrodden, and he is very conspicuous. He's attracting a lot of attention. So he always said the way that he dealt with prejudice was to pretend that there was no prejudice and just to get on with his life. And, I mean, that's very evident. <laughs> He's so, see, you read the paper clippings from the time, even just to talk about cars. It's amazing. If you search Jack Johnson and car in any of the old newspaper archives, the amount of stories that jump up at you about him either crashing a car, getting speeding fines, you know, there's ones where he's in London and he's parked his car across a street and mobs of people are coming to shake his hands and police are trying to move him on. He's really created a presence. It's like John L. Sullivan was getting drunk in every town. That's what we had. Jack Johnson is every in every town with his latest motor car getting speeding fines or crashing his car. Well, the other story that's always happening is there's always a woman attached to him. He's, he's meeting different women in every town. He's really yeah. having a ball. Live life in the fast lane. Yeah, he's always hanging out with different women as well. This is a, a big part of the, the story. And it's not just black women, it's white women too. And this is scandalous at this time. He doesn't care. He just does what he wants. He believes that his private life is his personal business. You know, he's earning $3,000 a fire at this point and, you know, he's spending all of it. He's living large. Hey, good, on, good on him. How does he finally get his fight against Tommy Burns? He refuses to be ignored. Johnson ends up tra- following Burns around the world. He keeps calling him out and eventually sort of wins the public over. So people start wondering if Burns really is the champ. And as we touched on with our last podcast... Burns isn't really, he's not really loved by the public. The heavyweight champion's supposed to be the pinnacle of masculinity and he's a five foot seven Canadian and a lot of people don't see that as... Um... <laughs> is the problem that he's Canadian? Is that, is that not masculine or is it the five foot seven or is it the combination? Burns, Burns eventually says he will fight Johnson for $30,000 but thinking that no one would match that price, he thinks he's priced himself out of a fight. Look, you're, 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 you're clearly in the anti-Burns crowd. No, <laughs> because, I like Burns. No, it's funny because I have the sense that Burns just knew how much the fight was worth. Those years he avoided, Johnson was just building up the fight because the amount, the, how huge it was when it came around was unmatched in its time. Well, he sure delayed it. <laughs> and he got his money. And, and the reason that money was produced, there was an Australian promoter, Hugh, huge deal Macintosh. Tell us about Great this name. guy who made it all happen. Yeah, so Hugh McIntosh was a one-time pie salesman from Australia and he's a fast talker. He's got the gift of the gab. He's just 30 years old and he talks some sports investors into fronting up the money for this fight. And Johnson's only going to make $5,000 out of this, but it's too good for him to pass up, get in a shot at the title. And there's a, there's a good story here before this fight where Burns says, I will beat Johnson or my name isn't Tommy Burns. And, of course, Burns' real name was Noah Brusso. So <laughs> now we don't know if that actually happened, but it's a, it's a funny story. <laughs> I, I wonder if he said it knowing that he was going to lose. Like, oh, yeah, I'm really confident. Uh, if, I, if I wasn't going to win, my, my name wouldn't be Tommy Burns. Yeah. Knowing he's about to be laid out. Now, the fight, the fight takes place on Boxing Day at Rushcutters Bay in 1908. 20,000 people cram into the stadium there in Sydney. And it said another 30,000 people were trying to get in outside. So it was a huge deal in Australia. 
There's another story that comes around that incident that is, a, again, one of those ones, did it happen, did it not happen? It's one that Hugh McIntosh told. Yeah, the story is that Johnson wanted to try for a bit more money at the last minute. So everyone's in the stadium and he's in the change rooms and he tells the promoter, I'm not coming out unless you, you give me a bit more money. Hugh, huge deal. McIntosh isn't <laughs> happy about this. So he marches into Johnson's change room, furious. And as the story goes, he says, so you want a bit more money, do you, cobber? Where's my checkbook? And he reaches into his jacket and he pulls out a gun and he holds it to Jack Johnson's head and he says, you better get out there. <laughs> that's, that's even more brutal and ugly than I've heard it told before, James. <laughs> you know, normally it says pointed at, not held to his head. That's, you've taken it to a next level. <laughs> That's another one we'll put in the, you know, the legends basket, I reckon. We do know how the fight went. Tell us exactly how it went down. Well, it turns out to be a relatively easy fight for Johnson. He fights the whole, whole time with his big smile on his face. He's talking to the crowd. He's taunting Tommy Burns. He knocks Burns down a couple of times. And the 14th round, he gets him down a few more times and ends up finishing him with his famous uppercut. He's eventually declared the winner. And, you know, it's a amazing moment in the history of the sport he's 30 years old 14 years in the ring and now he's the heavyweight champion of the world now if we we can just circle back a bit from here to a man we talked about in one of our earlier podcasts peter jackson who we believe should have been the first black heavyweight world champion but never got a chance at the title. There's the story about Jack Johnson. On his way home, he stops at Brisbane and he visits the grave of Peter Jackson to pay his respects to the man who didn't get the chance at the title. And I read an interesting observation that Johnson made about Peter Jackson because Peter Jackson was universally loved by Australia. He was sort of the greatest sporting hero of his era. And Johnson said, well, it might have changed had Peter Jackson won the title because Johnson himself found that once he won the title, people started to treat him a little bit differently. Mm. Can you tell us what happened once he got back to America? Well, there's some parts of black America that have said that him winning the world title, the championship, was the most important thing that had happened to black America since emancipation. But there's other parts of America that aren't so happy. And his relationships with women start to become a problem here. His hometown of Galveston had planned a homecoming parade for him and they cancelled it when they found out about him travelling with a a white woman who wasn't his wife. And it isn't just the white community that's going after him, it's the black community too, some of the black community. Um, And he becomes hated by large swathes of the population. (laughs) That's that's, that's not not how you want to be as chair. No, and, and he's getting death threats. We've said at the top of the podcast, he's a man who lives his life how he wants. He's not going to be changed by other people's prejudice. Does he, he must have to kind of pull back a bit in the face of all this. Not at all. <laughs> this is Jack John. Think about how he drives, you know. It's, <laughs> Just put to the floor? Put to yeah. the floor. He ignores them all. He moves to Chicago and he continues this extravagant lifestyle. There's a vice district in Chicago called The Levy. And it's home to 500 saloons and 500 brothels. And he is right at home here. He's really in his element. There's a story here about him getting to the most prestigious brothel in town and he's with nine different women at once. Nine women seems extravagant, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's this. It's where le- this is the stuff of legends. It's good to talk about them now. Some of the legends of Jack Johnson. We mentioned how much he loves cars. One of my favourite stories is about when he pulled. Well, you tell it when he gets pulled over by a cop. Yeah, the, probably the most famous Jack Johnson story is he's driving through Georgia, speeding, of course, and he gets pulled over, and the cop says that's a fifty dollar fine, and he unrolls his huge roll of banknotes and he gives him a hundred, and the cop says I don't have change for this. And he says, the other 50 is for when I come back here doing the same speed. <laughs> the story, a story that I saw in a newspaper, he was put in jail for speeding and he said on the way out, he said to the police, I'm coming back through this town. You better be ready. And he sort of knew they'd set speed traps for him, but instead he had a brand new car, a flash car, and he just drove it as slow as he could down the main street, ringing a bell and honking the horn, just announcing to the police, here I come, boys, try and find me now. He's just... He doesn't seem to be a real human being. He's just, yeah. He seems like a, a character. He also got fined for going too slow once. As well. <laughs> so he couldn't win. The, the cops were <laughs> going to get him either way. At the same time as cops are desperately handing out fines to Jack Johnson, there are promoters who are desperately looking for a white man who can beat him for the title. But that search isn't going so great, is it? No. No, it's not. Johnson keeps winning. He knocks down everyone they put in front of him. He even takes on famous middleweight from the era, Stanley Ketchell. Ketchell is a, is a brilliant fighter, but as, as you said, he is a middleweight. He was obviously out of his depth there. Well, Ketchell and Johnson actually have a lot in common. They both love women, they both love gambling, and they both love cars. So the two of them come up with, a, with an idea. They both knew Johnson would win, so they let, they're going to let the fight go the distance. 20 rounds, not hurt each other. Both make a bit of money. So it's essentially a, a sparring show. Yeah, and Ketchell's manager even says to Johnson, let's be practical, Jack. I wouldn't let him get in the ring with you for a million dollars unless I had your word that you wouldn't hurt him. So Johnson's going to carry him. It must end up a pretty boring fight. Yeah, Johnson, as the, as the fight starts, he's, he's doing enough just to win the round. It's entertaining enough for everyone. But in the 12th round... Ketchell decides to double-cross him. <laughs> His manager screams, Now, Stanley, now! And Ketchell launches a huge shot at Johnson and drops the champ. Ketchell's broken the deal. How does Johnson fare after that knockdown? Well, Johnson gets off the, off the floor smiling and almost immediately he knocks down Ketchell with a brutal uppercut. He hits him so hard that Ketchell's teeth are lodged in, in his glove and... Ketchell's out unconscious for minutes afterwards. I take it their little friendship is over? No. Amazingly, (laughs) they actually become better friends after the fight. They go out drinking and driving and finding women. This is... (laughs) Yeah. Around around this time, with with that win, that victory, as, as questionable as it was, or as strange as it was, there's a growing call for the former undefeated champ, Jim Jeffries to come out of retirement and reclaim the title. Of course, there's the problem that he's blown out to 300 pounds, well above his fighting weight. Yeah, he he gets so many letters from fans telling him to come back and not to mention the, the money that's on offer. And in the end, he bows to the pressure and says, you'll come back, get into shape and, and fight him. We've talked about this fight from Jeffrey's perspective in our podcast about him. Can you give us a sense of what it was like in Johnson's camp? Yeah, Johnson's getting a lot of death threats now. This fight's got a lot of heat. There's even threats saying that if he wins, he's going to get shot 
while he's in the ring. So it's um, it's not ideal. It's not a great way to start. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not, it doesn't strike me as the best preparation for a fight, but it doesn't seem to affect his performance. No. Johnson goes on to become the first person to floor Jeffries. And defence is just too good for Jeffries' style. There's a great bit early in this fight where he punches Jeffries. He gets him a brutal uppercut. And he says that Jeffries gives him a look. And his quote is, I knew that look and what it meant. The old ship was sinking. So Jeffries' corner throws in the towel in the 15th round. And Johnson cements his claim as heavyweight champion of the world. And in the wake of that fight, you know, we talked in the last podcast about the riots that were across the country and the, the, the lynchings that occurred, whereas Johnson himself, he faced some struggles. Yeah, he has a couple of years off boxing after this. He opens his own nightclub in Chicago, the Cafe de Champion. It's a mixed-race nightclub, which was pretty unheard of at the time. It's a really flash joint. He's got Rembrandts on the walls. It's pretty fancy. There's jazz bands playing. Johnson himself is in a band. He plays the bass. But it all ends badly. He starts drinking heavily. He's violent with some of the women in his life. And in September 1912, his wife, who lived upstairs above the cafe, commits suicide. She's upset that he's seen other women, but it's also very socially isolated being in a mixed-race relationship. I guess you can't overstate how controversial that was at the time. Yeah. And there's an inquest into a death afterwards, and Jack admits that he himself had been suicidal after the fight with Jeffries. And this might have been through trauma, or we don't know exactly what that was from, but he said that his wife had suffered through nursing him through this period in his life. He's dealing with this tragedy, but at the same time, the rest of his life is under increasing scrutiny, isn't it? Yeah, from 1910 onwards, the Department of Justice is starting an investigation into him. They're trying to get him on anything they can. The one thing that they try and get him on is this thing for violating this thing called the Man Act. And it's basically travelling across state lines with a woman for immoral purposes. That's pretty much Johnson's hobby, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, it must be said here that the press are eating this up and Johnson is becoming the most hated man in America. Um, The Policeman's Gazette, which is the big boxing publication at the time, calls him the vilest and most despicable creature that lives. Um, (laughs) They're not pulling punches. And even, even some of the top black journalists are coming after him. They're saying he's a disgrace and all this sort of stuff. When he's released on bail... There's calls for him to be lynched in the street. God. And uh, eventually they do find a former companion of his who says she'll be a witness in a case against him. It's yeah, it's a real stitch-up. What does Johnson have to say about, you know, I guess this persecution from the lawmakers along with the press? <clears throat> he has a good quote here. He says, The search for the white hope not having been successful, prejudices were being piled up against me. And certain unfair persons, piqued because I was champion, decided if they could not get me one way, they would get me another. So how does all this play out in the courts? Well, in 1913, a a jury finds him guilty on very shaky evidence and he's sentenced to a year in prison. No one had ever been jailed for this act before, this, this crime before. And a judge sentencing him at the time said he was sending a message to black men about relationships with white women. Wow, it's, it's, gosh, it's astounding, isn't it? 
I take it Johnson's not in a hurry to go into prison, so how does he deal with this verdict? Yeah, you're right. He's not going to stand for this. While on appeal, he flees the country. <laughs> okay. He says he, he says he fooled the cops by dressing up as a professional baseballer. So he arrives at the train station, gets on a train with a baseball team and gets out of town. <laughs> now, as, as great as that story is, years later, his mother and sister will tell a story that Johnson might have paid thousands of dollars in bribes to crooked cops and lawyers to get himself out of town. So we never know what really happened, but he got out of the country and he turned up in Montreal where one of his girlfriends was already waiting for him. I think it's a safe bet wherever he turned up, there would have been a girlfriend waiting for him. <laughs> you know, it seems he had one in every town. Where did he end up going once he met this girlfriend? Well, he travels to London, Sweden, all over the place. People know he's a fugitive, though, so it's not as, as, good as, it's not as good as a wicket as it was before. Some hotels knock him back, that sort of thing. But while he's overseas, World War I breaks out, so the whole European boxing market sort of oh. falls away. But he's still living extravagantly while he's out there. There's, they said that he had 16 full trunks of tailored clothes. So he, he was always in a three-piece suit. He's always got his neckties and his special cane that he takes around with him everywhere. He always said that his biggest crime here was beating Jim Jeffries, and that's why he's on the run. <laughs> They're never going to forgive him for it, are they? He spent seven years on the run until he finally decides to head towards home and take on a fight against an American giant, Jess Willard. Yeah, Jess Willard is six foot six ranch hand from Texas, and he's 250 pounds. And he's a bit of a gentle giant, really. He's someone who didn't even like boxing. He was just making the most of his physical ability, but he was fearsome and he was someone who killed someone in the ring. So wow. he wasn't to be trifled with. Yeah. And Johnson agrees to fight Willard for the, for the championship. And Johnson can't go back to America, obviously, because he's going to get arrested. So that the fight takes place in Cuba. And that's a place where American fight fans can go and watch it. And um, Johnson's very much living large still. He's 37 here, and there's reports that he's having three chickens for lunch. He's still, <laughs> he's still drinking wine before the fight. He's smoke, always got a cigar in his hand. It's still that guy. Willard, on the other hand, is the up-and-comer. He's, he's the younger fighter and prepared well. So how does the fight go down when, they, when they're set to fight 45 rounds in, in the hot Cuban sun? Johnson looks really good from the start. You think that Willard's, Willard's out of there at the beginning, but Willard starts to push him around as the fight goes on, and this heat is incredible. And in the 20th round, Willard... <laughs> it's sh- crazy, these old fights, isn't it? 20 rounds, 22 rounds, 20, you know, 45 yeah. rounder. It's ridiculous. Insane. Willard lands a big shot on Johnson, and he starts to really slow down. In the 22nd round, Johnson t- gestures to his men in his corner to get his wife out of the stadium because he knows what's about to happen. He knows he's going down. The, that old ship is sinking. Yeah, exactly. There's a point where Johnson gets his famous gold teeth knocked out and he said that he's too proud to, to sort of spit them out of his mouth. He didn't want anyone to see the teeth, so he swallows his own gold teeth. And in the 26th round, Willard knocks Johnson down with a crushing right hand. There's controversy about if he's unconscious or not. But Willard certainly wins the fight. And that's it. Johnson's reign is over. Years later, Johnson would tell people left, right and centre that he'd throw in the fight? Yeah, he claimed that he'd been promised if he lost the fight that he could get back into America and not do jail time. 
Other times he said he did it for a bribe. Of course, he might have just been saying this to save face. My favourite quote from that whole incident is from Willard. And Willard said, If Johnson threw it, I just wish he threw it sooner. It was hotter than hell down there. (laughs) Good line. That was the end of Johnson's seven-year reign as heavyweight champion of the world. And it would be 20 years before another black boxer, Joe Lewis, would get a chance to capture the heavyweight title. After that loss in Cuba, Johnson built an offbeat resume. He opened an advertising agency in Barcelona, which you'll be shocked to know didn't go too well. He, he worked as a bullfighter, and he says that he could have been a great professional. Not many people seem to agree. Eventually, his years on the lamb were over, and he handed himself into authorities in 1920. He was sent to prison where he ended up serving 10 months. What happened when he got out? He was still very much in the public eye. He continued to fight into his 50s. He played in his jazz band. He coached some other fighters. And finally, at the age of 68, he was killed in a car accident while speeding. American sports writer John Lardner said at the time, Jack Johnson died crossing the white line for the last time. So James, it's, it's a hell of a life he lived. What do we make of Jack Johnson as a whole? We had an incredible career. From the humblest of beginnings, he rose to be one of the most famous people in the world. And he wasn't just a great fighter in the ring, he fought the authorities out of it too. And in an era where he could have been murdered easily, he lived life on his own terms. It's a legacy of defiance and courage, and he's really a man like no other. There's one final story about Johnson from 1910 when Halley's Comet was at its brightest. An excited boy tried to wake the champ to show him the celestial wonder. Jack Johnson told the kid to let him sleep. He said, Haley's Comet comes around every 75 years, but there's never going to be another Jack Johnson. Thanks, James. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to Series 1 of The Fighting Life. We really enjoy hearing from you, so be sure to email us at thefightinglifepodcast at gmail.com with any stories you'd like us to cover. And make sure you subscribe so you know when Series 2 launches. Thanks again. Cheers. Cheers.